Everything you're hearing is from the Home Depot, from the baseboards and nails, to these throw pillows, even those super soft sheets. Because now at the Home Depot, you can get everything for your bedroom, from wooden nightstands to modern benches. Save up to 25% on select bedroom furniture, plus free and flexible delivery and easy in-store returns. Shop decor now at homedepot.com. More saving, more kinds of doing. Valid on select items online only. Free delivery on select items, $45 or more. Visit homedepot.com for more information. Welcome, everyone, to Creating a Family, a talk about infertility. Today, we're going to be talking about implantation issues or implantation failures in infertility, um, a topic that has been uh, in the news or at least uh, being discussed quite a bit right now in our online support group. It's an important topic. I hope you really enjoy this. This show is brought to you by Creating a Family. We are the National Infertility and Education and Support Nonprofit. I'm Dawn Davenport. Dawn Davenport. I am your host and the director of Creating a Family. And you can find us and all of our resources online at creatingafamily.org. The Creating a Family radio show is underwritten by our corporate sponsor, Faring Pharmaceutical. Faring wants you to know about a new tool available right now just for men. It's called Fertistrong, and it is an app for your phone, uh, and it is a self-help fertility support mobile app specifically designed for men. The app provides techniques to empower men with knowledge and self-help skills throughout the stressful journey of infertility. To learn more about Fertistrong for yourself or for the man in your life, uh, visit their website, Fertistrong.com. Let me spell that for you. F-E-R-T-I-S-T-R-O-N-G. Dot com, Fertistrong.com. Today we're going to be talking about implantation issues in infertility. We it's a uh, we often talk about, of course, all the all the issues related to infertility, and we we focus so often on getting the egg to meet the sperm or the sperm to meet the egg, vice versa. That, so the actual conception, or we talk about the early, very earliest growth of the embryo as it's moving down the fallopian tube fallopian tube, but what we don't spend as much time talking about is the issue of getting that embryo to implant into the uterus. What we know, what we don't know, what works, what doesn't work. There's been a lot of development and a lot of research in the area of of uterine um, or endometrial receptivity as of late. And we're going to talk about that today with Dr. Angie Beltsos. She is the CEO and medical director of Vios Fertility Institute in Chicago. She is a board certified obst- and she is board certified in obstetrics and gynecology and in reproductive endocrinology and infertility. And she's been practicing medicine since 1991. And she also is on the board of Creating a Family, and we are so happy to have her wisdom and expertise guiding our organization and and helping us uh, to develop into a stronger support and education base for infertility and for infertility patients. This is a re-airing of a show we did two years ago, and uh, the topic, as I said uh, at the beginning, is coming up more often right now, and we wanted to bring this show to you again uh, to help you understand more about uh, 
endometrial receptivity and what we're learning right now and implantation and implantation failure. I hope you enjoy the show. Welcome, Dr. Beltsos, to Creating a Family. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to speak with you and the audience today. Yeah, this is an it's an interesting topic, and it's one that I think we tend to overlook. I think most of us probably know the basics about conception and how it works. You know, sperm meets egg, and if it's happening without fertility treatment, uh, they meet in the fallopian tubes, and the embryo then moves its way to the uterus where it implants in the uterine lining or the endometrial lining. If IVF is being used, the sperm meets the egg in the embryology lab, and then when it's anywhere between five and uh, three and five days old, it is transferred via the vagina through the cervix and deposited into the uterus, where we hope that it will implant into the endometrial lining. So, yes. but I think we don't think a lot. We think a lot about the embryo, and we talk a lot about the embryo, but we don't really talk a lot about in the endometrius and the and, and what that does. So let's. But today we're gonna we're gonna remedy that problem because. That's, that's what we're going to be talking about. What, <laughs> what makes a good endometrial lining? What is considered good? What do embryos like? Well, that is a, it's a fantastic point that you bring up. We have a lot of attention directed towards an egg, the sperm, the embryo, including the ability to understand its health by what it looks like and um, as well as pre-implantation genetic screening. And yet a lot of the attention to the uterus has somewhat been ignored until lately. And what does an embryo like the uh, uterus to, to be like? What is it? What does it look like? So one way of examining the uterus is just to look at it on ultrasound, looking at the uterine lining. Imagine the room you're sitting in is the endometrial cavity. That's where the baby's going to spend its uh, nine months growing. And the, the room develops a, almost like a wallpaper that covers the whole surface. That lining, that uterine lining, that velvety wallpaper will get fluffy, which is the effect of estrogen. And then after a woman ovulates or when progesterone shows up, the progesterone will make the lining sticky. So the embryo loves a fluffy and sticky lining. We like that lining to be really smooth. Um, We don't want any lumps or bumps in there like polyps or fibroids. The um, surface also shouldn't have much scar tissue on it. And things can develop in the uterine cavity um, in that space as well as in the muscle of the uterus. And so once you have this perfect embryo, whether it be by natural conception or fertility medications or with IVF, we want that space, that that room to be perfect. You mentioned that we wanted to, uh, in an ideal world, there would be the absence of scarring. What causes scarring in a uterus? Scarring can come from procedures like a DNC, a miscarriage, an abortion. Sometimes people have polyps or fibroids removed. Surgical procedures can create scar tissue. Infections can create scar tissue. Devices like an IUD might, although that's uncommon that the IUD would damage the lining. And these things um, can happen. Also, if someone had a polyp or a fibroid, sometimes that inflammation in there could also develop a little bit of scar tissue as well. 
Okay, and, and you, you mentioned inflammation. That's such a hot topic now in all of medicine, and we're learning that inflammation anywhere can have impacts on our health, um, significant impacts on our health that have up to this point not been known. What about general inflammation um, that might be caused by what I'm not sure? You mentioned polyps. Is uh, inflammation in the uterus uh, or on the uterine lining a problem uh, that embryos that might impact uh, implantation? It's a it's an interesting question. The that which is our strength can be our weakness. Inflammation is a really powerful force to help protect us from infections or to help tissue heal, and it's an important um, part of a natural of natural health. But sometimes inflammation can overdo it and be overzealous and create problems. So it can actually create swelling, irritation, and too much of uh, a reaction. Sometimes the body even can see itself as an issue or, or, or a foreign um, process like people that get thyroid disorders, for example. Their body sees their thyroid as a as a, as a problem, so it attacks it and creates inflammation in the thyroid. Same things can happen in the, in the reproductive organs, including the uterus where the body sees um, something and then overreacts and creates this inflammatory reaction. Yeah, so, so it's, once, we, once we have an inflammatory reaction, that in itself could be problematic as far as embryo implantation. Yeah, yeah. it sure can. Yeah, sometimes it's, um, we like to see a little bit of that re- reaction but too much can be problematic. And so people have looked at this idea of going in and removing some of that inflammation uh, or um, removing it either with a camera, with, which is called a hysteroscopy, where you put a little camera inside the uterus and look at that area and, and try to remove it directly, or just a plain endometrial biopsy. And as we look at the topic of endometrial scratching, that also creates a little inflammation. And when that happens, sometimes the uterus is more sticky for the embryo after you um, go in and what they call, quote-unquote, scratch the uterus. We're going to come back to that. I definitely am fascinated (laughs) by that and want to talk to you. I think a lot of people are, but we're going to come back to that. All right, so what influences how the uterine lining develops? The lining develops for uh, the first thing is with estrogen and that we have talked a little bit before because as the egg grows for the month, it will produce estrogen and that estrogen will then go to the uterine lining and make it fluffy and that it, and it thickens the lining. So that's one of the first changes that we see after the menstrual cycle. So the menstrual cycle will shed the old lining and all of it will come off. Uh, all that wallpaper analogy, all of that kind of gets pulled out and comes out and then it's bare and then the estrogen will allow that lining to rebuild and get thicker. Okay, so then, so it's basically, it, okay, estrogen is the is that which, what happens that then makes it sticky? Did you tell us at the beginning that that was a different yeah. hormone? Yeah, so once the estrogen makes it fluffy, ovulation will occur, the egg will pop out, and now the ovary will produce progesterone. And so that second hormone will arrive on the scene and make the uterine lining very sticky. It does that through a variety of methods, 
the blood flow changes to the uterus. So all of a sudden, the um, amount of blood flow increases and you start to get a very moist system. It's almost like the sprinkler system went on in the lawn and the lawn is getting watered quite a bit. Progesterone creates almost a sprinkler system in the uterine lining and makes it very moist. Uh, when you go um, to your kitchen sink sponge in the morning and it's dry, well, progesterone adds water to it. So now the lining is very, very moist. The second thing progesterone will do is create a layer of honey on the surface of the, the lining. It does that by making a little bubble of honey, which is called the glycogen, and it bubbles that to the surface, and then the lining allows that to kind of seep onto the surface of the lining. And that also allows, because it has some sugar in it, it gives the embryo some energy uh, when it shows up and lets it get a, a little bit of a, a coffee jolt, if you will, a little sugar in its system so it can have the energy to embed itself into the lining as well as being sticky. And hopefully those two things will um, help the uterine lining be as receptive or as friendly as possible to the, to, the end, to the embryo being able to attach itself. You know, that's absolutely fascinating. It really is. <laughs> so when we have uh, a cycle, in this case let's talk about uh, um, conception that's taking place through uh, infertility treatment. So when we have a cycle that fails, whether it be uh, IVF or IUI, uh, mm -hmm. What are some signs that it might be the result of implantation failure versus some other factor? I mean, how do we know why it didn't work, a particular uh, cycle? As you said, let's talk about one that involves fertility treatment like an IVF cycle where what we know about the embryo, um, we know what its egg and sperm look like. Sometimes you might say, well, the egg looked really weak or the sperm looked were really weak, but when they came together, the embryo actually looked uh, very strong. You can, we expect an embryo to have certain features, and let's assume that the embryo did look very good, and you may even have further data that not only was it a beautiful, blossoming blastocyst embryo, and as you know, embryos get graded with letter grades. They Like school, you get reading and math scores. Well, here you're going to get two letter grades, A's, B's, or C's. And if the embryo is graded as an AA and you know that it is genetically, seems to be genetically healthy by pre-implantation genetic testing, yet it doesn't implant, why wouldn't a beautiful embryo attach itself? Well, it could be the embryo in spite of what we do know based on, one, its appearance, and two, its genetic health. That isn't proven to be 100% in those cases. So still there could be something wrong with the embryo that we cannot tell, something physical, vital structures that are going to develop, like the heart or the brain cells. Maybe there's something in that context for that embryo. The other side, number two reason for failed implantation is a uterine factor, whether it be the uterine surface, um, inflammation, blood flow to the uterus, there could be something going on there that's preventing the uterus from being sticky. The third reason IVF may not work is luck. So it can float into the tube or just not attach in the right amount of time. So what percentage of, uh, again, we'll talk about IVF, what percentage of IVF failures would you say are associated with endometrial factors? Well, many believe 
um, in the field that very few cases have to do with the uterine lining. And it is not an easy answer, but there are probably a fair number of instances where the uterine lining is the reason why a good embryo did not implant. And you could try to zoom, you know, hone in on that both by parental age, how old the egg is. For example, women who are 40 may have a 30% chance that they could get pregnant because they have weaker eggs. In a woman, so the big variable of how success rates are are determined with IVF is how old the egg is. But nonetheless, when you optimize an egg, even to the, let's say, to the point where you've used an egg donor, still not all egg donation cycles result in a baby, pointing again to a uterine factor. So we kind of back into it. We, we say, if we, if we assume at this point that, the embryo is looking good. The egg and the uh, uh, the egg and the sperm look good. And as you point out, more and more we may have information on the genetics through pre-implantation genetic screening or diagnosis. So, if all else looks great and we've got a really great-looking uh, embryo, then we start becoming suspicious that uh, at that point that um, that the problem might be the endometrium. Um, yeah. I, We've all heard now, uh, it seems to be more and more people, we, we run a really large uh, online support group, which, by the way, let me tell everybody, uh, we do run a very large online support group. We're well over 7,000 members now. We would love to have you guys wow. join us. It's really it's a great group. Um, to get to That's that group, fantastic. you can find us on, it's a face-closed Facebook group, so you can go to Facebook, facebook.com slash groups, slash creating a family, or quite frankly, just type in the words creating a family in the search box, the Facebook search box, and both our page uh, pops up as well as the group. So you can like the page and join the group. You do have to be approved to get in, I should add. I mean, not approved. We have to let you in. You have to click join. You won't automatically be in. All right. We have been hearing more and more people in the support group talk about the endometrial receptivity array. It's a test. Um, so tell us about that. Uh, one can guess what it has by the title that it has something to do with uh, checking out the endometrial lining. So what is that test and, and how is it used? So the endometrial receptivity array is a test where you do a biopsy of the lining to make sure it's sticky. The ideal number of days that we give estrogen and progesterone has been determined by research to show that most um, women, their uterus is, is ideal and sticky after five days of progesterone. So let's pretend someone was doing a frozen embryo transfer and they took estrogen for a couple of weeks. We add in the progesterone for about five days, and then on the sixth day we would um, – have the embryo transfer performed if it was a day five embryo. And that seems to work and give us our best success rates. But is just because it's a size seven shoe doesn't mean it fits. And sometimes what's good for everyone else isn't really what your body likes. So in order to really tailor the progesterone exposure and also to understand that woman's uterus, how sticky the lining is or when is it optimal, is to do a mock cycle where either by natural ovulation or medicine, we identify the fifth day of progesterone 
exposure, if you will, to that uterine lining, and then do a, a tiny biopsy, like a little skin biopsy of the inside of the lining, and send that for testing. So this could not um, be done in the same month that you're trying to you're you're, you're planning your um, um, your transfer. This has to be done at a different time because, if for no other reason, um, you are going to be sending us off for a biopsy, so you won't get the results back immediately. Right, and you okay. do want to consider that though people have done a biopsy and a transfer, that's not how this is performed. Uh, so you would do. This month would be sort of a testing a month, a mock cycle, as you pointed out, and not a transfer month. And then the tissue is examined in this particular biopsy test. Um, the ERA test looks at its DNA makeup, and it looks at over 200 different genes that should be expressing themselves in a unique way. And with that, it should tell you if the uterus is receptive and sticky on the day you think is best. When we do that test, uh-huh. No, say so go ahead. <laughs> um, yeah, so when we do the test, about 15% of women might have an abnormal test result. So in those women that we weren't quite on the right day that we thought we were, um, most of the women who have an abnormal test actually need one more day of progesterone. A few people actually need one day less. And, and if you examine that data real tightly, it's 120 hours from progesterone exposure. So for example, let's say it's 9 o'clock and you gave yourself your first dose of progesterone, that sets the clock, and then the embryo um, would be in there 120 hours later. But sometimes that window is shifting a little earlier or a little later, and that allows the transfer to be timed perfectly to your body's needs. So we've talked about a specific test, which I think that's actually, is that a brand name? I don't know if it is or not. Endometrial reset. It is. Are there other tests like that? That's, that being a brand name, is that the only one out there? There are other ways to check the uterine lining. Another um, test is the endometrial function test, and another one was the integrity test, along with one that would just get sent to be looked at under the microscope, um, and they look at certain features under the microscope for this luteal phase, the time that would be the, the, the around the window where the embryo would be implanting. Those other tests look at different things. They look at inflammation and protein expression. This one is timing progesterone. Right now, this is the one that's um, available in the world, but there are others coming. Yeah, one went out. It, it seems to be something that, that uh, is kind of a hot area now that we're focusing more and more on. Um, is this recommended for most patients or only those who are at increased risk for, say, an IVF cycle failure? That is um, a question I've begun to ask as well to my patients and to my um, into science to say, should we be now that the data becomes more robust, we're understanding the meaning of this test a bit more, it could be used when someone has failed 
IVF or multiple embryo transfers to say, is there a uterine reason why they're not getting pregnant? The flip side could be that maybe some women, they're not getting pregnant because of this, and it would be helpful to know that on the very front end of her care. So it could be something that might be smart to do even from the very beginning. You know, cost being it, it just it is an issue. It just it's frustrating that it is such an issue for so many people. Um, so I could certainly see how wanting to know up front would be very helpful. Um, yeah. Is this test is this test. Um, do you happen to know how much this costs, and if this, it's covered by medical insurance? If you're so lucky to, if the patient is so lucky to have mm-hmm. medical insurance, it covers fertility treatment. Yeah. So, number one, it would include some. Um, evaluation of the, um, the the lining with if you were doing the mock cycle estrogen and progesterone, and then it would require an endometrial biopsy that might be covered with insurance. The test when you send it, it's sent specifically to a a laboratory, and the cost of that is around five hundred dollars. So the test itself is, in the scheme of things, not particularly expensive, but it, as you point out, it does have to accompany the cost of the mock cycle plus the, the, the time and the cost of, the, of doing the mm-hmm. biopsy. Okay. Yeah. And, and we say biopsy, that sounds uh, like uh, more major. Does, does this require anesthesia? Does it require what? I mean, yeah. it's from a, from a So it's like a, it's like a pap smear. A speculum would be placed, and then a tiny catheter the size of maybe um, spaghetti is gently placed into the uterine cavity, and then we remove some of the skin cells from inside the uterine lining. That can cause menstrual cramping, like when a strong menstrual cramp when you get your period. But it is typically not done with anesthesia per se, like one would imagine for surgery. This is done in the office, and then something like Tylenol or Advil, a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory can be adequate to just help with the pain. And it takes a few seconds to just remove the tissue, and then you would lie in the office for a few minutes and could head home after that. All right. Now let's, um, let's move to the topic of endometrial scratching. That is certainly something that uh, we've been reading, I've been reading about, um, and we're beginning to see an uptick in people talking about it and asking questions about it on our on our group. It was actually uh, the topic that kind of spurred this show, to be honest, because we were seeing a number of people ask questions, and we realized we really didn't have resources to answer them. So let's start by answering the basic question, what is endometrial scratching? So that is the biopsy I just described. Um, it is where we use a little catheter and go in and remove a little bit of the lining of the uterus. The, the catheter has a little bit of a suction on it, so when you place it in, it um, pulls a little bit of the skin from the, the uterine lining off, and in that case, it's like a, a scratching. So really, it's the same. It's the, when, you're, when you're doing any of the testing, when you do a biopsy, you are, in essence, scratching or, or slash disrupting. Exactly. Um, the yep. interesting. Um, all right. So uh, that so so somehow you are 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 messing with the endometrial lining. You know that it, it doesn't seem to make in some ways logical sense because we've talked about earlier. 
implement we, we want a nice smooth surface we want things to be calm we don't want there to be inflammation in the in the uterus we want that wallpaper to be fluffy sticky and we want it to probably be you know well attached and so how, why does why does messing with it and and, and disrupting the smoothness um and, and likely causing at least some type of inflammation uh have the result of Increasing the op the uh, the the, uh, the chances that an embryo is going to uh, implant. Well, probably like other areas of the body, I um, know that when this was uh, published, they looked at this scratching technique. But I would like to use the word um, exfoliation, and the way we perform that at Vios Fertility Institute at my practice is I use the Um, camera to go in, look at the uterine surface, and see if there's any debris, polyps, or um, anything in the uterine cavity and remove that. But also I do this scratching technique using uh, an instrument that looks like a little pair of tweezers and gently um, brush off the surface of the uterus. Embryos tend to like the, the top of the uterine cavity the best, so they like the ceiling to attach to first. And by going in, you can create this inflammatory reaction that allows the tissue to be regenerated and create a new fresh skin surface for the embryo. It reminds me as when we go to the dentist, you brush your teeth every day and floss, but in the nooks and crannies, you know, you need to go in and remove some of the the tissue or or, uh, debris that can build up. The uterus itself will bleed every month and we reset the lining and and kind of heals itself every month, but there is something about... um, removing some of the the skin cells, the dead skin cells, and allowing a fresh new lining to kind of appear. So I think that that idea is very important. You brought up inflammation again. It does create a healing and an inflammatory response. In life, it is important to have balance, and you need a little inflammation. You need a little bit of that process to allow tissues to heal, to grow, to become, to regenerate themselves. Um, and older tissue may, you know, create some debris and in the, you know, in the uterine cavity, just like it does in other parts of the body, where we sometimes go in and need to clean things out a little bit. And I think that idea happens in the uterine surface. We talk about damage to the endometrium, and I don't know if it is damage per se, but allowing some of the the deeper skin cells to kind of come up to the surface. Is it done in the same month that you're trying to conceive, or do you do it the month before? The month before. Okay. And and can this also be used uh, to help couples who are not going through fertility treatment, either IUI or IVF, uh, but are trying to conceive naturally? Can uh, Is this being used to help those couples? Well, that is a, it's a great point that could we be not only doing this at the end of um, – the, the line where we're doing fertility treatment, IUIs or IVF, but might we do it on the front end if someone's not getting pregnant? And uh, some doctors consider doing it at that time. The hysteroscopy that I described obviously is more involved and requires anesthesia. And so as we discuss options with a couple, doing the endometrial scratching in the office can be done just with a simple biopsy as it was done in the study. And that study showed an improvement in pregnancy rates when they um, did it and then did another attempt at pregnancy with IVF. They had a 29% in the group that did not 
do the scratching, and a 49% chance of getting pregnant um, in the group that that did the scratching. So it significantly improved the odds of the um, of the couple achieving pregnancy. And so it may may play a role even earlier on than when they're doing IVF. Yeah, there was some um, research uh, presented at the ESHRA conference, I believe, this year on um, it was a review of all research that had been done on the effect, uh, effectiveness of endometrial scratching. I didn't pull it up, but I read it when it first came out. That's uh, interesting. It doesn't sound very comfortable. Is it a painful procedure? The biopsy itself is like having a pap smear. It causes that crampy feeling that I described, but it lasts for a few seconds typically, and then afterwards it quiets down um, soon thereafter. So with a little over-the-counter pain medicine like the the acetaminophen or nonsteroidals, usually that's enough just to keep it quiet. The hysteroscope... Um, procedure, which is a little more thorough. Um, afterwards, most couple or most women might describe a, a menstrual cramp for that day, but okay. it's usually not a significant pain. What causes endometrial problems? Is there a genetic component? Depending on a woman's ethnic background or. Um, and, and family history, some women are prone to fibroids. Their mom might have had them, the grandmother. Um, women of who um, tend to have about a 50% chance of developing fibroids, and that can impact the uterine lining itself. African-American women have a significantly higher rate of, of fibroids. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, up to 75% or higher in women of color. And... Um, Caucasian women can be as high as 50% as we age. Uh, women do have uh, a tendency towards getting either a fibroid, which is that knot in the muscle wall, and that is considered to have some genetic component, family history, and as I mentioned, ethnic backgrounds. Um, the other part is could um, you know the lining itself be, be concerning? Could you ha- get, inherit a bad lining? if you will, issues with the things that we've talked about, um, it, it may, but that I'm not familiar with anyone who's looked at that. And, and our last question is, and we, we received a question from our audience asking about this. Um, she specifically asked foods, but I'm going to generalize her question. Is there anything that a woman can do to improve her uterine lining? Like I said, the question came in asking if there were foods that would enhance the lining, but I would also add are there lifestyle changes or choices that can make a difference in the receptivity or the health of the uterine lining when you're trying to conceive? Good blood flow to the uterus is considered important. Like other organs, we think of the heart needing good circulation. The uterus also needs good circulation. People wonder what the impact is of things that restrict blood flow, smoking, um, caffeine. So I would say limiting that might um, help just improve overall blood flow. Women ask about, is there a vitamin? Vitamin D has been found to make the uterus more sticky. Foods have vitamin D in them. Um, Of course, dairy products, milk, and yogurt have been found to be helpful. There was a really interesting study of egg donors, uh, egg donor recipients. So women 
who were not using their own egg. One group went on vitamin D, the other group did not, and there was a higher pregnancy rate given to the uterine factor that women who supplemented their vitamin D were more fertile from a uterine point of view. So I think that we cannot underestimate the foods that we eat, and I think her question or his question is excellent, that we do need really good nutrition, antioxidants like vitamin E, Vitamin C that you get in fresh fruits and vegetables is critically important to health and the immune system, but along with vitamin D can be very powerful. Um, people ask about the core of a pineapple. Somehow that um, in, in, uh, has been brought up to say that that helps also the uterus be more sticky, so go at it. It can't hurt. <laughs> I don't know, but is there any evidence of that or just, uh, yeah, I've heard of that as well. I've forgotten it. Um, uh, I, I don't it, know if it has to do with, again, its nutrient um, with vitamins, et cetera, might be a source, uh, but I haven't studied that myself, but I'm, I uh, bring it up as people have asked about that too. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, why not? You know, I've actually also heard uh, uh, soaking in uh, apple cider vinegar, which I mean, as in a bath, not oh. drinking it or douching with it. But, yeah, I, I, I'm kind of wondering, uh, yeah. But, you know, I, hmm. I have never eaten a pineapple core, but I, I might well. It doesn't sound that bad to me. <laughs> Thank you so much for being with us today on Creating Thank a Family you. to talk about this really interesting issue or topic. Uh, for people who would like more information uh, about Dr. Beltso or about her practice at Vios Fertility, you can go to her website, which is viosfertility.com. That is V-I-O-S fertility.com. And for others who are listening, please give us a ranking on iTunes. We are ranked number one, and we would love to stay there. And they use your comments and or your star your star rankings or ratings to keep us there. So please give us a ranking there. It literally just takes a, a, a less than a minute. Thank you so much, and I will see you next week. Everything you're hearing is from the Home Depot, from the baseboards and nails to these throw pillows, even those super soft sheets. Because now at the Home Depot, you can get everything for your bedroom, from wooden nightstands to modern benches. Save up to 25% on select bedroom furniture, plus free and flexible delivery and easy in-store returns. Shop decor now at homedepot.com. More saving, more kinds of doing. Valid on select items online only. Free delivery on select items $45 or more. Visit homedepot.com for more information. Your hands were made for greatness. Mighty hands for painting, paneling, and clicking the submit order button on homedepot.com to get that duvet. And these Egyptian cotton towels delivered right to your door. Do more with decor at the Home Depot. Save up to 30% on select bedding and bath. Now at homedepot.com. More saving, more kinds of doing. Ballot on select items online only. Free delivery on select items $45 or more. Enter promo code BEDBATH15 at purchase for an extra 15% off. Visit homedepot.com for more information.